The episode you're about to listen to was released back when the Mere Christians podcast was called The Call to Mastery. Now, if you love Mere Christians, you're still going to love these older episodes because the majority of each conversation focuses on how the gospel influences the work of our guests. With that disclaimer out of the way, please enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody, welcome to The Call to Mastery. I'm Jordan Rayner. Hey, I'm thrilled to announce that Master of One is now officially in bookstores everywhere. The book launched yesterday. It is a total of one day old, technically. And I know I've said it the last few weeks, but if you're loving the podcast, I promise you're going to love the book. You can go pick up a copy at Barnes & Noble, at Amazon, at Books A Million, wherever in the world you shop for books. You can go buy it right now. And you still have a few more days to enter to win this incredible trip to Europe that I'm giving away. I'm going to personally be paying for somebody, hopefully a listener of this podcast and the friend of your choice, to go on a seven-night European cruise. You're going to go tour La Sagrada Familia, the world's largest church, which I write about in the book. And then you're going to meet me in Barcelona for dinner. You got until January 27th, 2020 to enter the sweepstakes. You got to do it right now at jordanrainer.com. Hey, so this is a special week. This is the book's birthday. And so I have been saving a very special episode of The Call to Mastery for this week. I've been wanting to share this for a long, long time because I know so many of you are huge C.S. Lewis fans like myself. And so today I am incredibly privileged to share a conversation I recently had with my good friend and C.S. Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham. So if you've ever seen the movie Shadowlands with Anthony Hopkins, you know that C.S. Lewis was married later in life to Joy Davidman, who's Douglas's mother. And through marriage, Lewis really became the father figure in Douglas's life for more than half of his childhood. He's the last person alive who personally knew C.S. Lewis, which is incredible to me. And listen, he's a masterful culture creator in his own right. Doug has really been the chief champion for his stepfather's legacy. He's the head of the C.S. Lewis company. And he's been the producer of all those Narnia films that Disney produced back in the mid-2000s. And he's the producer of a new set of films that Narnia is going to be a production with Netflix. So Doug and I sat down. We talked about C.S. Lewis's daily routines and how he pursued mastery of his one thing. We talked about Doug's surprising first encounter with C.S. Lewis when he was at the age of eight. I'm just going to warn you right now, the audio quality for this episode is pretty rough, much rougher than usual, given that Doug and I were calling in from his home in Malta. But I don't think you guys are going to mind. Bear through the audio challenges as the content and the substance of this conversation is one of my all-time favorites on The Call to Mastery. So please enjoy this conversation with Douglas Gresham. Hey, Douglas Gresham, thank you so much for joining me. What is it, afternoon there, Malta? Yeah, it's, uh, what, um, 10 minutes to 3. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for joining me for the conversation. A few weeks ago, I had our mutual friend, Kelly Stewart, on the podcast. And, uh, yeah, by the way, have you read her new book? Yeah, I have. I have indeed. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And we were talking about the dinner that we had at the Goring Hotel in London with me, you, and Kelly's husband. What a fun yeah, Kelly wasn't was. there, unfortunately. But Kelly wasn't there. It would have been a lot more fun with her, right? Yeah, well, I met up with her later. 
And I actually wrote a blurb for one of her books or both of them, I think, because they are fantastic pieces of writing, excellent pieces of writing. She's an incredible writer. But I got to say, after that time at the Goring Hotel, you've got some pretty incredible taste in hotels. Is the Goring <laughs> your favorite hotel in the world? Probably, yes. Uh, I've been going there for over 30 years now. I'm kind of like one of the family. Yeah, I could tell when we were there. Am I misremembering this, or did you once have a run-in with the Queen at the Goring? I seem to remember some story. I, with I had a run-in with the Queen. I, <laughs> I, I met the Queen and a couple of our um, gala premieres for movies as well. But yes, I met her in the, and she was just in the foyer one time, and I just asked her if she needed any help. She said, I said, you know, can I help with anything? And she said, no, no, I'm fine. I'm just taking a breather sort of thing, and that was it. Because <laughs> uh, right, of the Goring's right around the corner from Buckingham Palace. So Doug, yes, it's actually, it's actually, I think the Queen probably used it to some extent as a, as a getaway from Buckingham Palace once he wants to be out from under. There is a royal suite at the Goring Hotel, which is available to the royalty at any time. Interesting. Well, I know she liked to have dinner with her staff there around Christmas time. And yeah, it seems like yeah, a pretty nice getaway. Yeah, yeah it seems I've like a pretty nice getaway from the Palace. Yeah. I think everybody listening to this podcast knows and loves C.S. Lewis, and many are familiar with his story, but they might not be familiar with yours, which I find truly fascinating. So I want to talk oh, about story. <laughs> buy my book and read, uh, buy lots and lots of copies, spread them around and read it. But you can buy Lent and Lent. I have to warn you of something. We've just had a huge thunderstorm approach toward the house. You may hear some weird noises in the background. No worries. I don't think our listeners will mind. So let's talk about your story, which you told so well in the book Lenten Land. Lenten Land inspired the movie Shadowlands with Anthony Hopkins. Is that right? I think so, yes. So for those who haven't read the book, let's get the quick version of Doug's story. So, and let's start here. How did you go from being born in America to living in London and ending up with C.S. Lewis as your stepfather? How did all this happen? Well, to start with, it wasn't my fault. I was eight years old when my mother and father uh, sort of parted company. And my mother had already gotten to know Jack when she was a Jack. Sorry, Jack is Jesus' family nickname. And he's had it most of his life. We left America after my father decided he wanted to be with someone else. And someone whom I'm very fond of, actually, was very fond of. She's dead now. So uh, when, it, when it happened, when, when my father decided he was going to be somewhere else with someone else, they got divorced. And my mother decided she would take myself and my brother to England because everything was cheaper over there at the time. It's probably the reverse at the moment. And she liked the people a great deal there, and she liked everything about England. And she'd been there earlier trying to find a publisher for her book, Smoke on the Mountain, in, in England. I think she succeeded too. But she got to meet Jack a couple of times on that particular first visit. And uh, so when we went over there, one of the first things she wanted to do was to introduce me particularly, but uh, my brother as well, to this great man who had written the Chronicles of Narnia about that stage, only about two or three of them. And who knew, in my, my imagination, knew King Peter personally, <laughs> and the great Lion Aslan. And of course, when you're eight years old and you've never been anywhere but America, and you come across the whole Atlantic Ocean on an ocean liner, which, which we did in the middle of a North Atlantic storm at one stage, I had my eighth birthday on the ship. We arrived in England, and if you grew up in America at that age, and you, some of the Chronicles of Daniel had been read to you, perhaps a little bit of the Knights of King Arthur and so on, you expect everybody to be riding on horses and, and <laughs> carrying swords and stuff. So when I got to the Kilns, the first time that we quite soon went to, went to visit Jack, and when you get there, you suddenly meet this stooped, balding, professorial-looking gentleman with long nicotine-stained fingers and, and teeth, and he just did not look like, I thought, someone who was in speaking terms with Viking Peter and so forth should look. 
and I was initially quite disappointed. <laughs> but it was only a matter of a few seconds, really, perhaps a minute or two at the very most, until Zach's enormous personality and his great charitable way of dealing with things eradicated any deficiencies that might have been, in, to my mind, in his appearance. And I lost an illusion and gained a very good friend, and he was a friend mm. until he died. Well, he's had the most influence on my life of anyone I've ever met or known. And all of that influence in his case was for the good. And mm. I, I was a bit of a rapscallion in my youth, but I have sort of stuck to what Jack taught me ever since. And I've been working on that pre- premise, basically, which resulted eventually in returning my life entirely in my life and everything I am and everything I have over to Christ, which is the only sensible way to live when you actually experience it. I've heard you talk about your spiritual journey before. Can you recapture that, right? So when did this happen? What was Jack's role in that process of you coming to faith in Christ? Like, what did that look like in your own life? It's so simple, it's almost impossible to describe. It was just Jack living a Christian life, very closely entwined with Jesus and everything he preached, everything he taught. And I didn't really understand that this wasn't just an elderly, professorial gentleman doing the right thing if he saw it. Because I was a young teenager through those days and years, and grew up that way, and still in my early 20s and probably right through to my 30s, I was a, a bit of a rat bag. I drove fast cars. Well, I still drive fast cars, actually, to be honest. Rode motorcycles, not always legally. I generally got up to all sorts of mischief. But then I suppose, really, when I had to look around at myself and what was happening to me, and I went through a terrible case of PTSD from all the deaths and so forth I'd, I'd, I'd been through, I presume that for a while, in my younger days. And I suddenly realized I'd tried to help someone and got it all wrong. All my life, I've loved to help people. But I got it all wrong in this case, and that's absolutely mess of it, and hurt a lot of people. And I suddenly sort of had to look around at myself and, and how I was behaving and how I was thinking, and realize this was not the way to go. And so I was a farmer at the time. I'm still a farmer, actually. I'll never stop being a farmer in one way or another. But I worked it out in my mind that if, if your tractor suddenly stops in the middle of a field and you're plowing something or baling hay or something, you get your tools out and you fix it. And if you can't figure out how to fix it, you go and look up the maker's manual for the tractor in which it'll tell you how to fix things. And when I realized I was making a complete mess of my own life, trying to run it myself, the problem was, if you live as a child, up to your eight years old, but about eight years old, and your mother and father split up and there's been lots of rows in the house and so forth, and you go across to a foreign country, and then in a short while after you get there, your mother starts to die from terminal cancer. And she does die in the end of that. And then about 18 months later, you get a message from America telling you that your father has committed suicide. And then about 18 months after that, the stepfather whom you've grown to love and, and honor and really enjoy being with died. When you go through that, you've got a pretty heavy burden of PTSD to deal with. And I realized that whatever I was doing wasn't working. So I better look for the maker's manual. And the maker's manual of the human race turned out to be the Gospels of Jesus Christ. So I turned my life over to Jesus, and, and he took over, and it's been very different ever since. So you were eight when you met Jack for the first time. How old were you when your mom and Jack were married? I would have been about nine and a half or closing on ten, I guess, at that stage, probably ten. Okay, so yeah, so you, your brother, your mom came over to England, eight years old. A couple of years later, they were married, and you lived at the Kilns from eight years old until basically when you left after school, 17, 18, right? Well, I left it not to school, but to go to an agricultural college. Yes, I was 18. But all of those years, I mean, I'm sure those were happy years with Jack and with your mom, but they were also very tragic. I mean, your mother passed away when you were 14. During this time, your biological father 
had committed suicide and then Jack died three years later. So you left the kilns shortly after Jack's death. Is that right? Yes, I was given a home by my mother's best friend in, in that area, a lady friend called Jean Wakeman, who was a, a motoring journalist, which is probably where I got my fascination for cars from. And I lived there for several years, I think, until I finally decided that I didn't like being where I was at the agricultural college. I wanted to go to an agricultural college to learn how to be a farmer. Hmm. And eventually I wound up at a college that was teaching me mostly how to get subsidies from the government and things like that, which I wasn't the least bit interested in. And at that same sort of era, I had met someone incredibly beautiful. And there's a funny thing about that, actually. When I, was, when I was a little boy in America, and from there on, I had a problem with my brother who was turned out to be a paranoid schizophrenic and a violent and dangerous one. Most of his aims and things he wanted to do when I was a little boy was to get rid of me. Mm. And he tried that in many, many ways over the years. I only have my, the death of all my parents to do, or the fact that my brother was trying to bring mine about. He eventually died Christmas Day in 2016 in a sealed environment in a psychiatric hospital in Zurich, Switzerland. I missed him. <laughs> I cried over his death, despite the fact that he'd spent his life trying to get rid of me. But in any case, all of that going together uh, does, does tend to mess you up a bit. But I did hugely enjoy the time we spent when my mother was in remission from her cancer, which lasted about about four years, actually. Hugely enjoyed being with Mother and Jack and Good Warning, his and Jack's elder brother. It was a wonderful scenario to live in. I often wish that I'd been able to record the conversation somehow that went on at that dinner table, because the just the laughter that sort of rocked the house almost. We always had a lot of fun. What are some of those conversations around the dinner table that you remember, some of the memories there at the kilns at C.S. Lewis's house that you're particularly fond of? Well, my favorite memory of dinner at the kilns was one time when my mother asked Jack if he'd remembered to do something she'd asked him to do. And he said, well, of course I did, my darling. What do you take me for, a fool? And my mother said, no, Jack, I took you for better or worse. Things like that. I mean, mean, they were terrific people to be with. My mother friend Jack enjoyed playing the game Scrabble. Mm. I'm sure you're familiar with that. But they had their own rules. They would take the board from one Scrabble set, and then they would take all of the letter tiles from two Scrabble sets and proceed to play Scrabble using all known languages, factual or fictional. (laughs) And they would just always be on the lookout for the other one cheating because that was part of the game for them to get away with it. On one occasion when I was watching them play this extraordinary form of Scrabble, Jack put down a word that Mother didn't recognize and she immediately accused him of cheating. So Jack came up with some cock and bull story about where the origin of this in sort of ancient Egypt or somewhere was and she still didn't believe him. So they looked at me and said, what do you think, Doug? And I said, don't ask me, ask Warnie. And Warney was Jack's elder brother, as I said. So I toddled down to Warney's study and got him to come back up to the common room in the house, or sitting room, as people would normally call it. And they asked him to look at this and see what his viewpoint was. And he studied the word very carefully, because he also was a writer and a darn good one and a historian. Mm. And he said that he would penalize Jack a large number of points for cheating, and equally penalize my mother with the same number of points for crowing over catching Jack out cheating. The whole thing was such a a laugh-filled atmosphere. Even when my mother was on the the brink of death, the house was full of laughter. But there were sober and somber times as well when she was in pain. That was the hardest thing to take, of course, watching her in agony. But some interesting and miraculous things happened during those times. I remember one time Jack 
My mother was losing her, her, the, the calcium of her bones to osteoporosis, which is a partial side episode of the cancer. Most people get it without having a cancer, but hers was accentuated by the cancer. And Jack prayed that if there's any way he could be allowed to, to help with this, the Lord would let him do so. He promptly starts to lose the calcium in his bones to osteoporosis, which he suffers from the rest of his life. And my mother started gaining the calcium in hers. Now, there's no explanation for this, except mm-hmm. that a transfer was, was officiated by Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. by God. So that was one. Mm-hmm. And there was another time I can remember when Jack was sitting with my mother, and the pain in her legs was absolutely excruciating. And she was trying so hard not to cry, not to scream. And Jack told me afterwards that he prayed. He prayed to God that he might be able, at least for a short time, to accept the prayer so that my mother wouldn't have to go, have suffered the, the pain I've been. He was praying that, he was, that God would let him accept the pain rather than my mother. And almost instantaneously, he felt the most agonizing pains in his legs. Mm. And my mother was free of pain. Wow. Those kinds of things are not things you laugh about, but they're things that bring you incredible joy and sudden understanding of Jesus' presence. Mm. I never gave up on Christ when I was being a ratbag kid, riding motorcycles and getting up to all kinds of mischief. never gave up on him at all. But one time when I finally realized that I couldn't fix this machine, I handed my life over to Christ completely. And it's been a totally different life ever since. So I've been tempted all the time to do all kinds of daft things. But I turn to Christ when I feel a temptation coming my way. So those years at the kilns, incredibly formative. And then, you know, another time we'll have to share the story. Well, people can go read Lendland to hear the full story after the kilns. You've had such a fascinating career from radio broadcasting to farming in Australia. You guys had the house in Ireland where you were ministering to women with post-abortion trauma. Here's what I'm curious about, though. What led to you, I mean, the work you're doing today, essentially being the chief champion of Jack's legacy through the C.S. Lewis Company, what led to you focusing so much time and energy on that work, on producing films and plays and other resources that will extend Jack's legacy? To start with, when you've known and loved a man as a father, as I did, Jack, and you actually love his works almost as much as the man, and I've read most of his works, if not all of them, over the years. Um, and then he dies, and you inherit, I think, a moral responsibility to take care of his works and ensure that he's not forgotten, make sure that he is still known, still doing good work, even though he may not be there to see it himself, or he may be looking down from heaven, who knows. But the point being that there has to be somebody to keep the work going, to keep the work in front of the public, to keep, to keep the work expanding. And there was no one except me to do it, I guess. I quite willingly plunged into it because I thought that Jack deserved as much as I could give him back. Yeah, so you've been doing this work for a while. You guys have produced a number of films. I know a lot of people <laughs> listening have seen the films with Disney in the mid two. What was that, the mid-2000s that those Disney Narnia films came out? Yeah, yeah. I'll give a date, so it's no good asking me. Yeah. It happened. I know and, it did uh, happen because I was in it. Exactly, so yeah, that was, that was exactly right. one, one of many things. Yeah. That was one of many things that, that were done. I, mean, I, worked with, I still work with HarperCollins quite a lot. When they come out with a new idea, it's bounced off me and we discuss it and so forth. And there are publishers, of course. How to describe? It's just something I feel that God wants me to do. And it makes me feel that Jack might be smiling at me. For all the Lewis work, the C.S. Lewis company owns the copyrights for all those works. Is that correct? Yes, it is. The works are now translated, I think, into almost 50 languages. Wow. And that's something I've tried to promote as well. 
So we probably have, in terms of Narnia, I think we probably have a reading audience of somewhere near 400 million people in different languages all over the world. That's unbelievable. That's incredible. Well, it's, so if speaking, you think about it, it's a lot of years gone by since those books were originally released, and they were only in English. And mm-hmm. we've spread about myself and my assistant, my, not assistant, my right-hand man, for example, and others in the, in the company have worked very hard to help them become published in other in languages all over the place. I loved it one time when I was in an American university, which remained nameless. And it was after I'd done a bit of a talk, and uh, all the students corrected around me, and a great nation. One girl looked at me and said, um, can I ask you a question? I said, certainly. She said, those centaurs you had in Narnia, were they real? <laughs> and I just couldn't resist. You know? I just couldn't resist. I said, yeah, well, we were on this great big plane in New Zealand where we shot this piece, and there was forest around it. You must have remembered the battle scene, and it was a great, wonderful place to shoot a battle scene. Anyway, I said that this suddenly, while we were you know, looking out to see if it was the right place to be, and we had a couple of helicopters we'd flown in, and there were no roads into there at the time. And I said, just from nowhere, under the trees, we saw these strange-looking people coming out. Of it. And finally, everybody just rocked with laughter, except this particular girl, and she looked at me and I suddenly figured out that I was having a go at her, you know? That's amazing. She laughed about it at the end. I gave her a big hug. She gave me a big hug, and it was all friends, thank God. That's but amazing. she did make a complete work of herself, imagining that. And it was beautiful, because I wish, I wish, I wish there were really centrals that we could talk to. Yeah. Doug, so I know a lot of Narnia fans were really excited about the news we heard recently that for the first time, one company has the rights to produce films on all seven books, and that company is Netflix, of course. Uh, so what can you tell us about what we can expect from that deal? What's the latest on this partnership between Netflix and the C.S. Lewis company? Well, to be honest, I can't tell you very much at all. Um, <laughs> we did a deal quite some months ago, and I haven't heard a word since. I mean, I'm listed as, as a producer, but I've heard no word from what they plan to do or how they plan to do it or when they plan to do it, for that matter. Looking at things, I don't know whether Netflix are sort of ready to rock and roll on this or not. But we'll find out in due course. I'm sorry I can't help. That deal was done a while ago, right? I mean, we're looking at more than a year ago since the deal was executed. Is that right? Oh, no, not that long. It was quite a few months back, but I don't think it was okay. might be a year. I'm very bad at time, because I said, uh, I don't think so. It's a year, though. I think it's- we all hope there's news very soon. We're recording this in November, but we're actually releasing this episode the day after my new book, Master of One, hits bookstores. I think some people are really drawn to the title, but a lot of people are intimidated by it. You know, I think there's this question of, how can there be just this one thing that I am going to master vocationally? And I found our conversation, gosh, this is going back a year and a half ago, about Jack's vocational one thing to be tremendously helpful. I remember I was asking you to confirm whether or not Jack's one thing was writing, but you disagreed with that. You said that his one thing was much broader than that. He was really a masterful teacher and he applied that in different contexts throughout his career. Can you talk about that? Like, why do you say that rather than writing, teaching was kind of the thing that Jack was most masterful at? Well, I think the writing was a product of his teaching. When he found a dilemma uh, right in front of his eyes of some sort, he would start to write down how he would interpret that dilemma in possibly science fiction or some other form of, or certainly the Narnian Chronicles, other forms. But every single thing he wrote was instructive to us if we wanted to learn it. Mm-hmm. He never forced things on people. I don't know if you've heard Till We Have Faces, but I think it's one of the finest books he ever wrote. In fact, it was a joint effort between my mother and him. They wrote it together. But there are so many layers of meaning in that book 
He doesn't pump you with it all at once. The more times you read that book, the more you'll understand what he's getting at. And there's huge depths of wisdom in it. And the same applies to almost all of his writings. The science fiction trilogy, for example, Out of the Silent Planet and Perilandra, and the last one, name which has escaped me at the moment, hmm. but that hideous strength, that's right. But those books, they're teaching books. I think everything hmm. Jack wrote in fiction turns out to be something we can learn from. And of course, all of his Christian books, his Near Christianity and Screwtape Letters, and all of those are just blatant teaching us how to avoid the pits of Satan and how to get closer and closer to Jesus. Hmm. It's not something that's difficult to read. It's not something that one has to... He's not preaching in any way at people. It just lets the facts sort of run out of the end of his dip pen and form the words on the page. And the result is that we can learn so much from his works. And I'm still learning from his works. I've been reading them most of my life now. I'm, I'm getting pretty old. I'll be 74 in a week's time. So, I mean, there's so much we can learn. And I don't think one ever gets to the bottom of his writings. Yeah. More and more information, the more often you read them. Yeah. So as I talk about in the book, masters of any craft tend to be pretty disciplined people and tend to have pretty steady routines. Jack appears to be no exception to that. Can, can you talk us through your observation, you know, living at the kilns with Jack as your stepfather? What did his day look like? What did his daily routines look like from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to bed? Well, he got up very early, often before dawn, as I do to this day. I think he probably was out of bed by about four. He would go down to the kitchen and make himself a pot of tea and take it to his daddy. And there he would proceed to answer the previous day's letters. He had enormous correspondence from people all over the world. In fact, there are three large books which contain uh, most of his letters, uh, the ones that were salvaged anyway. So he wrote back to anyone who wrote to him, except raving lunatics, of course, and everybody gets one or two of those now and again. But he was hugely compassionate with people who had problems or was in, were in trouble of one form or another, or just sad and dreary, and just people who desperate to talk to somebody. He was always there to answer their letters. So that was his first thing in the day. He would get up and he'd have his, his cup of tea, his little pot of tea, and probably a couple of biscuits, and get to work with a dip pen and a bottle of ink. Now, he never used a fountain pen because his thumbs were malformed and they wouldn't work on the thing to load it with to, to, to fill the ink. Interesting. In those days, to fill the ink satchel inside it. He would work on until he had got through all of his email. Now, that might take him an hour. It might mm. take him till lunchtime. Sometimes it would take him till mid-afternoon, depending on what was happening. But he would always go from start to finish? He would always finish what it, yes. whatever that correspondence was? Interesting. He would finish when he finished. I mean, when he ran out of letters to answer. Occasionally, he would put a very, very good letter aside for later study, or a very, very bad one as to how the heck am I going to answer this study. <laughs> Mostly, he would just work on until he got them done. There were a lot of letters, which are of minor importance, that came in, and those would go down to Warney's study, and he'd put them on Warney's desk and leave it to Warney got up. Uh, Warney would type them with two fingers, one on each hand, and very badly. <laughs> but at least they'd be more legible than Jack's handwriting, which is very difficult to read, as you're familiar with it, as I am. I can still read his handwriting, which is a great boon to me. But it was right until he finished, and usually that was sometime late in the morning or early, or up toward lunchtime, something like that. And then after lunch, he might spend about, I suppose, an hour or so reading something that he needed information from, or style from, or something from. Mm -hmm. And then he would sit down and write whatever he was writing at the time. And he would write right through the afternoon. He would go out for a walk about halfway through the afternoon, come back and have his afternoon tea, which would consist again of a large pot of tea and He'd have lunch, of course, in the meantime. 
I was probably three and many biscuits, about four or five biscuits sometimes. <laughs> and then he would retire back to his office if he had something pressing that he needed to write off. Sometimes a writer mustn't stop. You get to a certain stage in something you're yeah. writing and you just keep writing it until it's finished, that paragraph or that chapter, whatever it was. Because otherwise, you know, if, you've got, if you have an experience of this, and you do, that if you go to bed without finishing it, it may well vanish from your mind. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's yeah. a great loss to you and to, to your audience. So Jack would make sure that he didn't stop at, any, at a point where he would lose anything. So he'd often write on. Sometimes he would write on till late in the evening. Mostly not. He always came down for supper. Supper was at uh, dinner, rather, was at 7 o'clock at the kilns, and he was always there if he was in the house. And Borny too, and myself, and sometimes other people. But that was more or less his day. And when he was at home, at the college, of course, he was teaching half the day or most of the day and writing mm-hmm. some of the day. And, of course, they had wonderful evenings with meetings with the Inklings in Oxford. And later on, of course, they would get together in Cambridge much less often because it was a long way from Oxford. Mm-hmm. And sometimes Jack would usually come home from Cambridge University, from Magdalen Cambridge, every weekend. And he'd have a long weekend at home. And that was when he would go to an Inklings meeting or something and, and be with my mother, spend lots of time with my mother during those, those very difficult, very, very hard, but at the same time, holy years mm-hmm. that we went through. Mm-hmm. What time would he go to bed? If he's up at four, what time is he typically going to sleep? He would be still up at about 10, and probably till about 10.30. And I know that because I would be in my bedroom upstairs, which had been mm-hmm. his once, and I would have the light on, I'd be reading. He would come out to the uh, out of the back door of the kilns and come around to the little steps that lead up to the, the balcony outside of what was now my bedroom. And he'd shout, lights out, Doug, and I'd turn the lights out quickly. and say, yes, Jack, and good night, Jack. And as soon as he was gone, I would sort of sneak the light back on again. <laughs> a, few more, a few more pages of whatever chapter of whatever book I was reading. It was a wonderful place to live. It's one of my favorite places I've ever visited. It's such a, such visited your bedroom, visited Jack's bedroom. Well, that was only my bedroom at one time. I slept in almost every bedroom in the house. With the exception, I never slept in what had been my mother's bedroom. Hmm. I didn't want to do that. Hmm. But I slept in what we now call the music room. I slept in the room off the kitchen, which is my bedroom for quite a while. I slept upstairs in the room that had been Jack's study. I slept in Jack's bedroom later on. So I really kind of migrated around the house quite a lot. I'm not quite sure why at this stage, but I did. In my bedroom off the kitchen on one occasion, oh, that was a messy kid. There was clothes all over the floor and bits and pieces of junk stuff I was building or destroying or whatever. Mm. And I suddenly was lying on the bed reading a book. I suddenly heard a voice inside my head which said, look at the ceiling. I looked up. I saw a square about a two yards square of the ceiling falling, losing its grip on the rafters and starting to come down. And I was off the bed, across the room, and out of the door into the kitchen before the plaster <laughs> hit the bed. Jeff Roth has slept under that patch, because you can see this, it's cracking around the edges again. I told him he'd better move the bed next time he stays at the kilns, because it might come down again. Wow. Yeah, well, for our listeners who haven't been to the kilns, you really do have to go visit. It's an exceptional place. You already know this because you've seen an advanced copy of Master of One, but in the book, I take on the quote-unquote Christian film industry pretty strongly, right? Arguing that entertainment that is made by the church and for the church is seen by basically nobody outside of the church. Mostly because <laughs> I've been saying that for years. Yeah, mostly because these are just bad films. You haven't seen that yeah. through. So I want you to talk about this. Well, we talked about well, it's not just that. It's also it's awful lot of books are written with a Christian theme and they're advertised by publishers and by the writers as being the new Christian, you know, novel or whatever. The problem is nobody's going to read it except Christians. It's simple. 
you don't go to see a Christian movie unless you're a Christian. Mm. What we need is movies like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is not a Christian movie, but it has some hugely powerful Christian messages built into it, as do most of Jack's works. And I think it's most essential that the so-called Christian movie industry simply close up shop and go away and let those of us who are really dedicated to Christ make movies that aren't advertisable as Christian movies, but you will learn about how Christians think, how Christians work, or how they should work, and so on, simply by watching these movies. And there are a lot of movies that have done that in the past, and I hope there will be a lot more in the future, because it's the only way you can get people to really understand what Christianity is all about. I have seen some fabulous movies. One of the best ones I thought, but which I've seen, is I Can Only Imagine, taken from a beautiful song, which makes me cry every time I, I hear it. And I think that's, a, that's a sort of the sort of movie we mean. We, it, is, it is a Christian movie in a sense, but it isn't in other senses. It isn't in the sense that, and I haven't seen the movie, but I've heard it's well done, right? And that's the point I'm making in Master One. When we prioritize preaching our message above mastery of our craft, we usually end up with pretty bad cultural goods that aren't appealing to anybody, right? right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We do. If we start trying to preach through our movies deliberately, why not let the movie tell its own story in a way which will project not preaching so much? But the facts of what happens when you become a Christian. I think a lot of people are going to struggle with this, right? Because you say The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is not a Christian movie. It's not a Christian book. And I agree. It's pretty clear that Jack was not intentional about writing a, you know, quote unquote, Christian allegory. But the film reveals truth. The film reveals goodness. The film reveals the gospel. How did that happen? How did that happen in the life of Jack? Like when he sat down, what was he trying to accomplish in writing that book, if not to explicitly or implicitly preach the gospel? Well, if we can start by saying that the Christianity that's in it was not deliberate, he didn't set out to write a Christian book, as you say. He was having a discussion with, with Gerard Tolkien at one stage about children's books that were being written at the time that they were discussing. This would have been in the late 40s or mid-40s. And they both decided that the children's books being released to the public at that time were absolute rubbish. There's no way either of them would have wanted to have read those books when they were children. So eventually they, they decided that they'd, they'd sort of have a go themselves. And Jack eventually came out with The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. And of course, Tolos wrote The Hobbit. Mm. Now, neither of those are Christian books. But boy, do you learn about yourself? Do you learn about what you ought to be? Do you learn about how you ought to behave? what you ought to do under very, very difficult circumstances, being chased by trolls or something. All of this stuff is there. But it's always in the, I mean, in the shadows of it. You can feel the goodness of the men writing them. Mm. You can feel the fact that what they're teaching is not Christianity per se. It's how to behave as a real human being, a child of God. Mm. And that is so incredibly valuable. Yeah, it is. Yeah, In Master of One, you quoted Jack, who used to say, we don't need more people writing Christian books. What we need is more Christians writing good books. Which I, which I remember Jack saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah It's very that. true. It's what we do need. More Christians writing good books, more Christians making good movies is what we need. That's exactly right. Hey, Doug, three real quick questions I like to end every conversation with. First, which books do you recommend most frequently to others or maybe give as gifts to others the most frequently? Well, it depends largely on the circumstances, but I give away copies of A Grief Observed hmm. in batches. I mean, really, I, I've got to remind you, I've got to buy another six because I've run out. That book is so hugely 
beneficial for those going through the agonies of losing it in a deeply loved person, someone they've absolutely adored, and seen him or her suddenly taken away by disease or accident or whatever. I mean, it really knocks you sideways. And then out comes this book by C.S. Lewis, which, by the way, wasn't written, wasn't first published under his own name, published under a pseudonym. But this description of how you can deal with these horrible, horrible circumstances that come into your life. And he shows you that you can get through them and come out the other side back to being a normal, cheerful, loving and loved human being. That book is so valuable. I think it's, it, it probably should be published in sheets of gold. Mind you, people would just take it for gold if it was. That's one of the books I do hugely admire and give away whenever I have a need to do so. And I must remember to buy some more. I also give away lots of, of, of the, the Narnian Chronicles, usually yeah. to the children of people I know or have met. And, and have liked. In fact, there's a guy working on my houses at the moment, a workman, and I'm going to send him a set, rather, for his two young boys. And it's just, it's just what I do, you know. I also think that if I had time, I would buy and give away books all the time. I mean, <laughs> it's, very it's one of the best gifts to give, right? Books change people's lives. Like we have this very romantic attachment to books, and I remember. Some of the big turning points in my life are books that people gifted. It's one of my favorite yeah, things absolutely. to give away. So I ask every guest this next question. I'm really interested to hear your response to it. So what one person would you like to most hear talk about the intersection of their faith and their work? Maybe somebody in Hollywood, since you know that world pretty well. Like, Who's a Christ follower in Hollywood that's producing really, really great work that you'd love to hear talk about how their faith impacts what they create? <laughs> the truth, I don't know too many people in Hollywood <laughs> or in the movie business, I'm afraid. Just only the ones I've worked with. And very few of them are Christian at all. Some were. I think what we don't need more Christians making movies we need more Christians making good movies. It's as simple as that. And I think if we ever get to the stage, I think Ralph Winter is a Christian, for example. Yeah. Top dude, too, by the way. Nice guy. Enjoy his company enormously when we're very rare occasions when I see him. We need more people like that. We need more people prepared to get up and make a really good movie without saying, go to Jesus, everybody, every yep. five minutes. Last question, Doug. What one piece of advice would you give to somebody? So the people listening to this podcast... They are pursuing mastery of their vocations. They're pursuing mastery as filmmakers, as entrepreneurs, as leaders. What one piece of advice might you give that person who is trying to pursue mastery of their craft for the glory of God and the good of others? Well, I think the most important thing of all, no matter what your craft is, you're trying to achieve the mastery of, is to use it as a reflection of the master of all of us. He died for us on a cross, and then he came back. We need to know, and we need people to know in our work, that we revere this idea of the fact, for example, there are a couple of things, really. For example, love. I think we've got this all wrong in modern society. Love is your benefit at my expense. End of story. That's the kind of thing we have to get across. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with sexuality. Sexuality has absolutely nothing to do with love. Love is your benefit at my expense. And that was what, you know, I don't think Jack ever used the phrase. I came up with it, but it is what Jack taught. Love is your benefit at my expense. We need people who are prepared to go into their great career, whatever it might be, keeping that in the forefront of their mind at all the time. What did Jesus do? He expended his whole life to our benefit, our benefit at his expense. That's real yeah. life.
That's beautiful. I just want to commend you for the exceptional work that you do. Thank you for being such a great champion for the work of your mother, your stepfather. We didn't even get to talk about your mom, but your mom was such a fantastic writer in her own right. Thank you for working hard to ensure that Jack's work remains accessible to the world. By the way, even to my kids, I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old. Thank you for making sure that they're going to grow up in a world filled with Narnia. And just thank you for your commitment to the Ministry of Excellence, of writing great books, of making great films, of producing great plays. Hey, if you want to learn more about Doug's story, I really, truly cannot recommend Lenten Lands highly enough. It's an exceptional book. How long has the book been out, Doug? Has it been a decade, two decades? How long has it been out? It's about 30 years now, I think. 30 years. It always amazes me that people keep buying it because it's been on this market for ages. Such an exceptional book. It's so well written. It's basically, it's Doug's story. But of course, you can't tell Doug's story without also telling the story of his mother and of Jack as well. Doug, thank you so much. I'll tell you one funny thing. I wrote a book called Jack's Life as well, which is a biography of Jack. I've read written for children. And one of the reviewers said, I don't quite understand Mr. Gresham's tone in this book. It's almost as though he was writing for kids. (laughs) <laughs> which my reply was, well, duh. <laughs> also a great book. Very, very short, very condensed version of Jack's story. But again, go pick up Jack's life and Lenten lands. And Doug, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat. Always appreciate it. You're very welcome, Jordan. It's been good to talk with you. I hope you guys really enjoyed that conversation with Doug. Doug was so kind to endorse Master of One. He really wrote one of the more heartfelt endorsements of the book that I'm just so incredibly grateful for. He's one of the most generous people I know. Hey, if you go order the book right now at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever you buy books, head over to jordanraynor.com after you make that purchase and enter to win this trip I'm giving away to Europe. Thank you guys for listening to this very, very special episode of The Call to Mastery. Thank you for pushing through the technical challenges and the poor audio quality. I promise next week the audio quality will be much better as we recorded it in Dave Ramsey's studio. So you guys have that to look forward to with my guest Luke Lefevre next week. I'll see you then. 